Good evening. And you're still here. <laughs> and that bar is still low. <laughs> and um, maybe you're discovering today that it's still not easy. I want to talk tonight about some of the things that are hard in doing this practice and maybe some of the ways that will help with what makes it difficult and challenging. And the theory seems so simple. And particularly if you're newer to it, you'll read about this thinking, that sounds great, I can do that. The idea of metta is wonderful. And then, you know, you get here and then, well, maybe you're enthusiastic and it seems good and they seem like nice people and you like the setting and you're still up for it. And then <laughs> reality sets in and then it's <gasps> your body and all the things that come that aren't so metaphor. And, and for some of you, you'll be, you know, definitely have experienced like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Where's all of that lovely stuff? And I'm just stuck with my neurosis here and all my pain here. Suddenly, I, as soon as I settle down and get in touch with my heart, the tears just pour out. And Am I speaking to anyone in particular? Anybody relate? <laughs> We know it's, it isn't the ideal. Life is never the ideal. And metta does sound so beautiful. Not that it isn't. So, um, another thing that I think is really worth thinking about, and I take great comfort from, when I first heard somebody say this, oh, that's so clever. We, uh, we human beings with these minds and hearts that we have, we're so clever. And we even have this extra capacity compared to all you know, the other mammals anyway, probably, we can't talk to them, but of being able to actually do some work on our minds with our minds. We can look at the mind with the mind. We can even train the mind with the mind. It's amazing. And it works, and it's, we can, and it, we do. However, the mind that we're training is untrained or unruly or fractured or you know, conditioned, or call it what you like, cluttered up, neurotic, I like that word a lot. But the mind that's training it is, is that neurotic mind. So we're trying to train a neurotic mind with a neurotic mind. I mean, <laughs> we don't exactly have the perfect tool to help this imperfect thing that we have. So if you remember that, it's like, I think of it as like trying, I sew. One of the many things I do, I'm old-fashioned, and I still sew things sometimes. Trying to sew with my gardening gloves on, for instance, would be really hard. Trying to do some fine thing with clumsiness. Well, that's what we're trying to do, some fine thing with this clumsy tool. So take a little heart. We're handicapped in doing it. As we become more whole, more healthy, more calm, more clear, we can do what we're doing more and more easily, and therefore it it grows well. But especially in the beginning, you know, we're really quite, it's like the blind groping around in the dark trying to figure out, you know, what button to push and so on. So, If any of you are feeling like, oh, this is so hard, and you're really fe feeling that sense of um, any degree of discouragement, or, oh, wow, what was I taking on? Or the feeling... And this isn't just you who feels this, but those of you who do feel this, again, take heart. Because you feel like that, the reason you feel like that is because you really care. You really care. You've come here because you care about something. And it's challenging. And if you didn't care that much, it wouldn't bother you that much that it was challenging. But because it's, it's like, oh, wow, it's because that really matters to you. You've, you know, you've planned for this. You've invested your time and energy and money incoming. You've arranged your life around this. You have expectations. It's not wise to have expectations because we never know, but we still do that. And that actually is a measure of your caring. It's a measure of, of your values, of what you know matters in your life. It's a beautiful thing. It isn't just you know, that you are somehow lacking something or your enthusiasm is flagging or something like this. Isn't anything wrong? This is what happens. So this state, this, what we talk about, these wholesome states, these beautiful divine states of friendliness and kindness and 
tenderness and consideration, respect, all these beautiful, beautiful states. As you've heard us say, and you'll keep hearing us say, and you've probably heard many people say, it's natural. It's, it's our true nature to be friendly. It's not our true nature to be neurotic, to be envious, to be critical and mean and harsh. That's sort of another layer. Deep underneath all of that, there is this pure-heartedness, this good-heartedness that we all have. And that is the truth. But that aspect of our true nature, that beautiful, those beautiful parts of ourselves, even though they're ours and they're natural and they're easy when they occur, they are shy. They are timid states. They're not bold and crude and out there confident state. You don't see, you know, you know, people, you know, who I'm referring to, obnoxiously bold and proud, being actually kind. <laughs> Kindness is quiet. Kindness is understated. Tenderness is soft. And one of the reasons why our beauty is shy is timid, is because f to let it out, we must be open. It's shy and hiding behind our defenses, behind our anxieties, behind, behind our needing to protect and concern ourselves, because life is unreliable and tricky and often hard. And so we, we shrink because we're so sensitive, because being open and friendly means being open and vulnerable. One of our teacher colleagues uses this word for the human heart. He says they're like mollusks. Well, a mollusk are all, the, all those slimy snails and slugs and octopi and things. I think it's octopus in the plural, but never mind. Which are soft and which often retreat, like sea anemones, which often retreat into some shell of some kind of husk, something. And we're like that in our heart center, which is where we're beautiful. We're tender and we're soft and we can really be open, but we're not going to be living like that because we're so vulnerable and life is chilling and so we keep shrinking in. And so we are not going to turn on a tap and then flood out all this fantastic gooey, you know, meta stuff. It's unrealistic. It's not what it's like. It's a very delicate process and it's a very gentle and often slow process of exploring this whole, it's sort of in a way like a process, but it's like a dance. It's the, the patterning or the, the behavior of this mollusk and how it opens and expands and softens and widens and is available and then how it in a moment isn't, you know, and what that's like. So we're, un we're learning to understand how it works in there. And it isn't that we're either like this, open like the anemone, all, or else we're like in our shell. It's an, a complete range all along that whole continuum from being really, really tight to being really, really open and anywhere and everywhere in between. And it can change, you know, in a moment, a thought, a word, a glance, a raised eyebrow. Because we're that sensitive, and it's that delicate uh, thing we're, we're paying attention to here, exploring. One way of thinking about this and understanding this, which I find useful, is to um, see the way we are, the way we function, as being t a two-layered, two minds, some people call it. The little one, which is the survival one, the normal one that we know, the one that is always trying to protect us and help us and collect things and avoid things and plan and all of that. All of the, and all of that mental activity that we do, <coughs> all the thoughts and all the comments and, <coughs> and all the busyness that we, we uh, do all the time is that one functioning. And it's trying to make us comfortable. It's not crazy. It's not bad. It's not a problem. But it's overdoing its job. <laughs> it's, it's working way harder than we need. 
and it only knows how to do its job and it just keeps trying doing its little job. Then we have this other aspect of ourselves, which in our modern society especially, at least the society that I've known in my life, we don't really attend to. And it's that wise, benign, beautiful, quiet, big awareness. We often call the little one the ego, or that separate sense of self, where it's busy being self-concerned, taking care of its business, and the big one being the, you know, whatever other word you want to use, different people through history have used different words for it. So here's my favorite poem, and it's still, after many, many years, my favorite poem. <coughs> and it's by Hafiz, and uh, Sally last night read one of Hafiz's poems. The Small Man builds cages for everyone he knows. Somebody's smiling, I guess you know this poem. <laughs> While the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. So the small man is like the small mind. It keeps dropping, um, uh, the small man, the small mind makes cages for everyone he knows, puts every little thing in a box and describes it and labels it and contains it with some description of knowing and liking. And While the sage, this other part of ourselves, is so expansive that we have to duck our head when the moon is low, this big part, keeps on and on and on and on and on and on, dropping keys making it possible for prisoners, beautiful and rowdy. I love that, our beautiful part and our rowdy. I mean, it's not our wrong or our evil or our, you know, badly behaving. It's just these rowdy bits of ourselves to emerge when they're ready. Dropping keys is the most passive way of purification I can imagine. It's not like going down there and grabbing them and dragging them out and shining the light on them. Okay, we're going to get to know you. It's very, very, whenever it happens, but it's enabling the, the hidden, the buried, the unknown to become known and understood and, and therefore healed or integrated or released and so on. So beautiful, beautiful poem. So I think of the two. And the part which is the meta, obviously, is the sage part the kind part. And when we say over and over to you, can you be kind with your headache? Can you be kind with being tired? Can you be kind? Basically, the, your sage can hold your small one and say, oh, you're tired. Oh, that's hard. Meet it with that quality, that beautiful quality. The little one is very uncertain that's the little mollusk, because so at the moment it's going to shrink. So expecting the day-to-day, the -day untrained, fractured part of ourselves to be kind is a high bar, but we have this c capacity to say, oh, that's what's happening. All already here, we just haven't learned how to see from that point of view, how to use it. We use the little one all the time for everything, and that one is unreliably kind because it's so vulnerable, right? I find that way of perceiving my functioning useful. The more we are operating from the small, the less meta-like we are likely to be. The more we're operating from that more back, quiet, clarity, the more meta there is. When we're functioning in a moment without any of the little me, my, I want, I don't like busyness going on, there's just meta. And when there's a lot of struggling and blaming and busyness going on, there's hardly any meta. The more meing, the less meta-ing, the more meta-ing, the less meing. It's like that, and that's the continuum. And so it's the sense of me and all of my agenda and all of my trying so hard to help everything and fix it and figure it out and blame and do all the rearranging of the ducks to get them all in a row stuff that's the problem. 
It's not a problem, it's not wrong, but that's what inhibits the access to the friendliness. Friendliness is there when the little one can just, it's okay, calm down, it's all right, shh, 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 shh. Then there's friendliness. It just gets sort of shrouded or covered over or cluttered up inhibited, I like that word, it isn't blocked, it isn't cut off, it isn't lost, you don't have to get it or make it or anything like that, it's, a, it's just there, it's just that we can't quite see that because we're so preoccupied, that's what is covering the matter. So, we do this practice to help ourselves access this sage part of ourselves, to help ourselves be able to see with more of that beauty. And it's a little more active than dropping keys. And Sally explained that tonight. last night, talked about that. And, uh, and I remember her mentioning, quoting Carol, who said, you know, just faking matter is better than doing something else. It's like being angry or critical or something. But what, so what we're doing, we're, we're deliberately inviting these beautiful states. We're taking two or three or four or whatever we've chosen, some wholesome states, and we're inviting ourselves to experience them. See if we can manifest that as an experience inside. Sounds great, good idea, works from time to time somewhat, being that we're mollusks and all. Um, but what did you experience today when you did that? And some of the time, you may well have felt friendly and you well, well have felt a sense of safety or a sense of peacefulness for some of the time. But I'm sure that as well as that, you had all kinds of other states coming up. Some of them not being anything remotely like friendly. Some of them being, you know, really critical or some, maybe you had a whole lot of aversive stuff going on. Maybe you were just like, you, you're friendly as long as they, this person doesn't breathe like that. Or, or when you get a different kind of lunch, or who knows, of course, it's a million crazy things. But there are whole, it's a whole range, just like there's a whole range of friendliness of aversive experience from just mildly whining. Anybody been whining today in there? You know, like, oh, it's not quite what I thought, that sort of <laughs> fed up thing, or right through to like irritation and critic kicking yourself, and oh no, and frustration and disappointment. There's a whole huge amount that we also will experience. We're not making ourselves be friendly, we're looking at friendliness, and is it there, and how is it there, and how much is it there, and learning how to help it be there more, how to access it, and how to. Um, make friends with and diminish the power of the stuff that's in the way. It's an exploration. It's not a creation. It's not a direction. It's exploring. It's getting to know, endlessly getting to know your own workings in there. So sometimes we'll, you know, we're inviting the wholesome states, that's the intention, and you've all got the intention, and a lot of the time you're applying that intention, and then some other thing is there too, sometimes both there. And then sometimes there are, are states of like, oh, this is a wonderful state, oh, I love this state. But along with that state can often come like, oh, I've made it, and we can start getting congealed around it. Oh, this is, oh, I'm going to do this for the next, I'm going to do this for my whole life, this is awesome, and we can get all very caught up in the wanting of that and start making it desire or we can set up a high bar for ourselves today I'm going to do a whole half hour just on kindness I'm just going to really zero in and we can get tight around it we can start getting desirous around aspects of meta easily that's, that's the separate sense of self trying to make you feel good by getting some good thing doing that program reasonable, it's normal, it's not wrong but it's actually cluttering up the meta, which is much more shy and quiet and simple. And you'll also probably, some of you anyway, if not today, then tomorrow or some other time, will have periods of feeling kind of like ho-hummish about it. Oh well, you know, this awesome place, this awesome practice and these lovely teachers and this great people and we're all so friendly and I'm just sitting here being bored, you know, it's like I'm sort of da 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 
Anybody have any boredom today? <laughs> Going through these words, they're nice words. And it just doesn't really do it, you know. It just is flat sometimes, you know. Well, that's going to happen too. These things are called greed, hatred, and delusion, if you don't recognize that. It's like at times we're wanting, at times we're aversive, at times we just can't be bothered with, and we're just disconnected from things. can happen with everything, including meta-practice. When the, any of these states, where the self is selfing, where I am wanting something, I'm not liking something, I'm judging something, I'm bored with something, there's a sense of me and that separate sense of self, however you know it and experience it. When that's strong, in whatever way, we call it a far enemy of metta. Now I have to say I'm a bit of a word nerd and I don't like to use enemy in terms of meta myself. I just think that's not appropriate <laughs> languaging. But I mean, it means the opposite feeling of friendliness. I don't know about an enemy of friendliness, but it, it's not. It's the opposite feeling, aversion, obviously, especially if you're criticizing yourself or blaming somebody, or you know, and so on and so forth. It's it's the opposite feeling. That's pretty obvious. But the less strong these experiences that we have in our minds become, and that's the continuum, the less strong they are, the less obviously opposite they are. Till they can get to be like, it's probably, this is probably good meta here, but right until you get to really, really totally meta, it's going to be somewhat confused or somewhat colored or clouded or distorted or obstructed right through to blocked, right, on that whole range. And it's easy to get not sure, and it's useful to observe this. It's a very skillful teaching the Buddha gave. Called these are called the near enemies of metta, or the Brahma Viharas. All of them have a near enemy area, so that almost friendly, almost caring, kind, beautiful things, but with a, some tinging of the separate sense of self, with still some wanting something or resisting something or something. A bit of that busyness of my reality, my point of view, how it affects me. And these are really useful to be aware of. We're, the others are fairly obviously aware. But because these become subtle, they can um, sneakily, we can, we, we can not notice them. We want to be able to see these too. So the the particular aspect of kindness, friendliness, which is not really friendly because it's got it's still some of the, the me in, is where kindness, friendliness, loving kindness, um, is being um, motivated by and is acting out wanting or desire. And a lot of the time, when we're kind, we have this bit of an agenda here with being kind, with being friendly. We'll do it because something. <laughs> we'll be friendly because then they'll like me back. We will um, give something to somebody because then we'll have a friend. We want something. We will um, be nice to our partner as long as they're going to be nice to us because it's making harmony. There's a there's a, a wanting something from it, wanting it to be a certain way. That's ego-based. That's the separate sense of self. That's somewhat contrived. It's not the meta that's the sage. The meta that's the sage has got no agenda. They're kind. They're kind. It kindness is completely not conditioned on certain behavior, on certain getting any anything back at all. And that's not in our, in our typical way of behaving. That's a high bar. Mm -hmm. 
something I want to mention. It's just a little thing, but it's a thing that sits in my heart for a long time. About, I'm not, this is before um, I started talking about near enemies. I was just describing different aspects of, of um, the sense of self and how it is in the way of being friendly. And this is just one I wanted to mention because it's, it touches me still. To um, be unkind, obviously, is the opposite of being kind. Uh, but s- there are these degrees of selfing in there. But even when we are n- being not caring, i.e. careless, that's not metta. It's not that we're being mean or unkind, but not really being careful with what we say is an absence of metta. For example, I have this thing um, that I've done, and it was years ago, but I remember it well. Um, a, f- a friend of mine has a sister. I've only met her a couple of times, but the friend of mine, actually she's the partner of my ex, not that that makes any difference. Um, she is a friend of mine. Her sister had a son who was killed in a car crash when he was 16. And um, I have a son who is only a couple of years older who's now 38, so it's like years ago, but nevertheless, I spoke to her, we had a little meeting just outside, on the road outside the car, and a couple of years after she lost her boy, and she said to me, how's your boy? And I said, he's fine, he's the light of my life. And I didn't think about what that must have been like for her. And I still regret it, you know. It's just such an offhand thing. It was a simple, almost innocent thing, but it wasn't careful. And that's not matter. That's not having the space in my heart. I was just in my own thing. Not having the space to actually empathize with her, or even feel what, what that's like for her. You know, she was ge- gener- generous enough to ask me about my mine, you know. Anyway, just an example of how easy it is to not be kind. Ill-considered words. You know, you just say something in an offhand way. Near enemies. I was talking about near enemies. Desire. When we get muddled up, when friendliness or kindness or loving kindness, whatever we think, metta, um, it can get it'll get muddled up a little bit with wanting, with desire. We so easily do that. We so easily um, we're friendly with our friends, but we're only friendly with them if they are if they stay friendly towards us. Like if they do something that we don't approve of, or you know, then then it's like, well, we're going to withdraw some of that friendship for a while, maybe until they get it together, or. You know, we we make sort of deals. We don't realize we're doing it, but often our friendships or our there's a sort of exchange deal going on. It's like we have a commercial arrangement that's un, unspoken, but when the terms change, the the withdrawal can happen. A friendship, either way, can happen, right? That's not real meta. That's near enemy masquerading as meta, fooling ourselves. Um, we can. Um, we can have a, a, an expectation around friendliness. Um, there's a sort of thing that about deserving friendliness we can get into. You know, do I deserve it or do you deserve it? You know, as though we have to earn friendliness. So there's certain there's certain qualifications for friendliness. Real friendliness, real meta, is not limited by anything, any terms, any conditions, any agreements, any feedback, any behavior anything unconditioned completely it's the separate sense of self that places conditions on things expectations on things measurements on things assessing our whole society our whole like our you know the Our economy, society, is all based on consuming, on getting and having and needing and wanting and exploiting and exploiting and more and more. It's the opposite. Meta has got none of the the energy of meta, of true meta, isn't this direction, it's this direction. 
It's unconditioned. It's like whatever here, not with any, not not two ways even. It's just with one way. It's a flow. So that's a that's the area, and we can explore that in yourself and see. You know, is this? Am I hanging back here waiting for? the smile to come before I can actually go ahead and say it. And it's reasonable because we're mollusks after all and we're tender and so the little self is going to be very tentative in its giving. But we need to explore this level. Hmm. There's a phrase, I, I think of this phrase often, a fair weather friend. You know, That's not really a reliable meta. You know, it's... F- as long as you're, you know, as long as everything's okay there for there, but when it gets rough, you know who your real friends are. You know, you know what real matter is. Any kind of needing or wanting or desire comes from a degree of hunger. Meta is not that. Meta is not hungry. Has absolutely no need. Meta comes from a place of complete contentment. Meta does not come from the state of, you know, dukkha is because of wanting. When there's any dukkha-ing, there isn't metta-ing, you know. And all of the Brahma-viharas have these, these areas which are really valuable to explore because that's where we can really get into the, the sort of fineness. It's obvious, you know, karuna, which Nikki introduced this afternoon, compassion, you know, staying open and friendly in the face of difficulty, suffering, pain, you know, it's tragedy sometimes. Well, the near enemy, I don't know, I wasn't here, so I didn't listen to her, but the near enemy, it's worth hearing these things over and over if you said it already, the near enemy of, um, of friendliness in the face of suffering or pain it's the typical mollusk behavior is aversion to that pain. And so there's a degree of like, oh, I hope it doesn't happen to me, which is what pity is, or, or some kind of like, you're going to be fine, we're going to get over it. You know, it's like, let's not have this last too long because it's too hard, or why didn't they catch it sooner, or, you know, blame somebody. It, those are all aversive averse, responses to the difficulty of the of the whatever the suffering is, but that's an aversive response. A true karuna response isn't because isn't tinged by wanting it to be other than it is. It's how it is. It's painful. It may be really, really painful, but it is really, really painful. Life is like that sometimes. Real karuna is quiet. It isn't doing anything about it. It's, it's just caring for it. It's like, and mudita has a near enemy. It's got a couple of them. Um, which are taught in the teachings, took me a long time to be able to integrate. But I like this one now. Mudita is appreciative joy. We'll also do some guidance in this during the retreat. This is the third of the Brahma-Viharas. It's it's friendliness in the face of when things are great, when things are really going well, like happiness, success, joy, some great experience. And uh, the the far enemy, of course, is like, you know, not being happy at all, being really unhappy that something lovely is happening to somebody else, like, you know. But near enemy, near enemy is um, exuberance. Took me a long time to figure that, what that does it mean, really. But what it actually means is desire. It's like, it's feasting on, getting off on the thrill of it. This is fantastic. Oh, getting all carried away with the delight of the joy. Because along comes desire, and then you kind of is wanting it or suddenly they're your dear friend this is my millionaire friend you know i'm this is my friend because you know you're wanting some of the pleasure to soak off on you or the benefit in some way so that's that's what happens around when things are joyful if there is that selfing there and then the last one upeka equanimity steadiness non-reactivity of a state that's that's peaceful and that that's wise large and doesn't get triggered into getting all reactive beautiful state the near enemy though the opposite of course is being triggered and being upset and being reactive and, and things closer to that end of the spectrum but the near end of the spectrum with equanimity and i have somebody in my life an important person in my life who who i all the time i see the shift from steady equanimity going into like, oh, well, whatever, you know, we're all going to die sooner or later, so it doesn't really matter. It's called indifference. And it's a disconnecting. It is, it's a steadiness, but it's a steadiness that removes some of the heart. And so it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. So it's got a sort of dismissiveness to it. And that is the, 
the disconnect. Oh, well, you know, these, these things will happen and everything will change. And so I don't need to engage or connect with that. Well, that's a protection, actually, for the separate sense of self. That's what indifference is. It's a protection. So the, that little agenda driven by the ego is what either has us shrink from the pain or grab onto the pleasure or, you know, get desire with the kindness or become dis- disconnected. Greed, hatred, and delusion acting out again there. So they're really useful to see in your own experience to get to understand, you know, how, where is the selfing going on here? Is there? You know, what's that like? Get to experience that more closely. So what we're wanting to learn, and, and we do learn by this practice, and this is why it, it becomes such an effective practice, isn't just that we say these beautiful things and then we experience them sooner or later, and that's that. It's that what we're really doing is we're learning by observing this molas going on in here of how it does it, how it works, when it's shrinking, when it's expanding, when it feels soft, when it gets like, ooh, gets a little shaken up, we want to understand it. We're not trying to fix it. It's just the same with our mindfulness and our vipassana. We're not trying to fix ourselves. We aren't trying to get something. That's ego. We're simply present with it. And by being present and giving our attention in this way, inviting these states and observing what happens and how they arise and how they diminish, we will see how it works, how mollusks function. As we understand that, the various causes for the happiness or the shrinking of happiness and so on will also become clear. And it's our system that understands that the, 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 that modifies our behavior. It isn't the ego that says, oh, this is good, this isn't good, this. We don't fix ourselves by thinking or trying. We grow wiser because we understand how it all works. Just the same as Vipassana practice, the same. But we need to observe, and not just observe from a a sort of platform above, but we need to actually be in there experiencing the shrinking, the softening, the expanding, the tenderizing, all the various with the tightening, the (laughs) don't come step closer I'm not going to think of that how it is experienced because we don't learn by observing we learn by actually experiencing it and more and deeper and over longer time it's like oh I'm living this I really feel how this works that's how we are affected by the practice Practice is an experience. The Buddha says, experienced by the wise. He doesn't say figured out by the wise or observed by the wise or listened to by the wise. <laughs> no. It's experienced. So there are certain things which help us do this practice and help these states become more available and certain things which um, help us not get confused and and shrink. And so I'm going to list some of them. These are just some suggestions. If we can see... As we're, as we're, you know, with this fractured minds, trying to see these fractured minds, right, as best we can, so it's as best we can, if we can see that it's like an energy system going on rather than it's me, that really helps. It's, you know, this is a mollusk, this is a heart, this is a vulnerable, sensitive thing, this sometimes is opened and sometimes, you know, it's just not about me. That's much more useful. As soon as it's about me, it's going to really shrink. It's going to get really excited or really you know, full of all of its greed and hatred and delusion. That's, the, that's how that manifests. So see it as a system, if you like. You know, just see it like a universal system. Every, every heart's like this. Some of the things not to do, I suggest, is um, then judging that. Like, oh, this is good, this is bad, this is right practice, this is wrong practice, this is working practice, this is not working practice. Just don't add the opinion, just observe, see what happens. One of my examples in the last year or two of uh, how to observe what's happening is Jane Goodall. 
I have a friend called Jane Goodall. It's not the same Jane Goodall. But I just think of Jane Goodall for years out there with the chimpanzees. And she wasn't saying, oh, that's good behavior, that's bad behavior, that's a good chimpanzee. She's a really good biologist, and she just observes them. And when this happens, that happens. And when this happens, then this is what the result is. She's just allowed, it's all, it's not judging any of it. She doesn't have an opinion about it. And she gets to understand them and, of course, therefore gets to love them because she understands them. But we don't need to add that qualification. We don't need to say, this is acceptable behavior, these are acceptable thoughts, these are not acceptable thoughts. We don't reject or pull in any whatever's going on inside. We are these beings with these sensitive hearts and they will come up with these, some of them, um, we think, crazy feelings and thoughts and stories and images. You have a lovely image and then you have some crazy image come up. Where did that come from? You know, some lovely words, da, 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 and then some rah, rah, rah come in there. Has that happened to anybody? It's, it's, it's very, it's not really, we're not really so able to control it. We like to think we're in control of ourselves, but actually you can see that it's, it's amazing. There's so many influences going on. So not, not deciding and rejecting and Beware about e- idealizing these meta-states. Be careful, Some, especially the people who are lesser experienced. Because they all sound so beautiful, we tend to inflate the beauty and think, oh, this is awesome stuff. And we then think meta means Hollywood kind of meta. You know, juicy and very loving, and the sort of extreme version of it. It's not that it's not sometimes very juicy or very tender or very wow and delightful. It can be that way, but that's not necessarily what meta just means that's the the high end of it meta is meta through a whole range again it's liking it's caring it's empathetic it's even um cooler it can be making space for something like the the for instance the conversation i just mentioned with that the woman who said to me you know you asked me how is your son it would have been more metaphor to just have some space for how she was feeling. You know, that would, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily said anything. I might not have said anything different. I might have added, you know, thank you so much for asking. I do appreciate you able to do that, something. And meta can be even, um, I, um, an example I sometimes give is, um, I sort of haul up meta when I'm on the dentist's chair, you know. Actually, you're in a dentist's bed these days, you're not even on a chair. It's like But anyway, when you know, when you would typically the small mind would you know really be aversive, can I just make space for that I'm lying here and these things are going on in my mouth, you know? Can I not resist this? Can I not get all of that other negative stuff? Can I actually just tolerate that? Tolerance is meta, because it's not adding the aversive like oh no thing. So it's not doesn't have to be the, the you know the big deal meta. So be careful that you don't idealize this and therefore assess or evaluate your experience in some way. Also, I really we've well, you'll be hearing us doing this over and over in a number of us in different ways. Um, don't think that you've lost it. Because at times it'll be there, and then at times it won't be there. There'll be a lot of this little, you know, way inside your little shell feeling. It's not that you've lost anything. It's just that, you know, the tenderness is more available sometimes and less sometimes. So don't say, oh, no, that's hopeless. I've got, you know, I've blown anything. There's nothing. It's not like that. It's just this endlessly opening and, you know, retracting experience. I don't know if some of you do that, but sometimes we can do that. We just think, you know, oh, I've lost, I had this great retreat, you know, six months ago, and now it's gone. Well, that's not true. It's not actually gone. It's just awake and sleeping. Another thing that we do hugely, I mean, we do it so automatically, we don't know we're doing it, but so we compare. We compare this sit with the last sit, or this retreat with the last retreat, or ourselves with what that person is. Obviously, look at them beaming and smiling or crying or something, and they're obviously feeling a lot, and I'm feeling so numb. Or we compare you know, my experience with what I think it should be. You know, anything that you know, we, we're comparing, we're actually not with what's really happening. We're wanting it to be different somehow. That's not... That's in the way, you know, just being with how is this little state right now, tenderly inviting it to relax, be safe. Um, And of course, not trying to get something, not trying to get it. Have you got it yet? (laughs) 
trying to make something. You know, we say that, or we always say that over and over. And this isn't a practice of, of contriving or even directing something. It's just an exploration into tenderness and more or less of that. Another thing that, that uh, we're beginning to say to you, and we will continue to say, is that what really supports it um, is the access to this, you know, heart uh, experience. Of, some people call it the climate of your heart, or just being intimately tuned into what's going on in here. How is it at any time? Is to keep going, staying connected to it. The stopping and the starting, and the stopping and the starting, and okay, I'll do it again, and now I'm going to just space out. In any you know, in, in all of our kinds of practice, whether we're doing concentration practice, whether we're doing Vipassana, whether we're doing metta practice, the steady, gentle ongoingness is, makes it so much easier. I mentioned it yesterday, and we'll all mention it. So what helps? Some of the things which facilitate our being able to get more and more tuned in and therefore more able to contact the wholesome parts of ourselves, these beautiful parts, um, are, here are some of the things which support it. Um, you know the word courage. It comes from the French word cœur, which means heart. And so being, um, it takes a certain gumption to be with what's actually going on in your heart. And so I would say um, the two words, courage and honesty. We often don't want to feel, we want to feel loving, but we don't want to feel bored and we don't want to feel critical and we don't want all the other things and all the near and far enemies. We don't want them. But that's not going to help. What's going to help is to be, be with how it really is, which takes a certain amount of courage, a certain amount of heart to be able to be with your heart, all of your heart, whatever's there. So there's a, this is a, an honesty experience. It's not a pretending, you know, faking, let's make it groovy and avoid all that other stuff. And there's a degree of that because we don't want to get lost in and caught in, in the, the struggles. We want to be able to bring some wisdom, some care, some tenderness to whatever's going on, even when we have lost it. <laughs> so there's some choice, as Sally was describing last night. But um, we're not pretending, we're not kidding here. It's not, she was joking when she said faking it till you make it. It's not really faking anything. That's useful. Another thing that's very supportive, I find this very supportive, and it all, it, all these things sort of manifest on their own anyway sooner or later, but this is useful, another useful reminder, is that this, I've said it already in a certain way, this heart, this human tender heart, where the beauty is, is in everybody. This is not personal. This isn't just your heart. This is what it's like being human, and I'm sure more than human. We are vulnerable, we are sensitive, we, every one of us, want to be happy. Every single one of us has cried and will cry. We all know what a broken heart is. We all know what it's like to be stabbed with mean words, to feel ashamed, you know, to be scared. We've all been abused and hurt. We've all been loved and praised and honored and all of it. It's a common thing that we're in. We're, in. we're all in this together, as Bernie Sanders said, which I really liked about his. Somebody said, what about, what's his spiritual belief? And he said, we're all in this together. I don't know if anybody else heard that. But, and this, we're all in this fix together, this vulnerable thing, being so sensitive in a life that's unpredictable, that will end in certain death, and we don't know when or how. And, you know, it's, a, it's such a thing. So you're not... You're not so special. You're not unique. Or you are completely unique, just like so is she, you know. <laughs> We're all as unique as each other. Another thing that really supports being able to do this practice is to have some interest in it, to be curious about how is your heart? What's it like? That quality brings our attention there so that we aren't caught wishing it were different, trying to fix it or just like disconnect it or something, judging. What really is it like? Jane Goodall. What's going on in there? What's it like now? So it draws us close to it. We're getting to know ourselves, becoming intimate, open, curious. Another that's hugely important, really supportive, is when we actually bring our attention fully to what we're doing and we really connect with it. 
we really connect with these phrases, what they actually mean. I know it sounds simple to say, and it's obvious, but we can just go, da, 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 especially if you're doing it several thousand times a day, which you are, day after day. Reconnect. What does that actually feel like? What does that actually mean? Reboot so that you really reconnect. Reconnect with whoever the muse is you're working with. Take the time to actually connect with that. What does that feel like? When you imagine being with this person, what is that really like? So feel it again. Feel whatever it is you're feeling. So that connecting your attention with your practicing, is it brings it alive again. And sometimes we have to redo that, re- reboot. And then staying with your attention, staying. Not just connecting, but actually then really keeping your interest in what's going. That's a certain application of our effort. But when we really stay there with that, we're not just da-da-da-da-da-da-da, off the top and onto the next one, da-da-da. It won't, it won't grow that way. You know, it kind of just gets dull that way. But really connecting with it, then really staying there, resting yourself in that, immersing yourself, that's how the whole thing becomes way more accessible. But that, that alone, I mean, talk about that alone, a whole talk, how to skillfully get close, be interested, stay there without getting too tight, without getting your teeth into something, without frowning. You know what I do when I'm sitting here? I look around and I'm, I'm sort of looking to see who's nodding, but I'm also looking to see who's frowning. We don't need to frown with this. It's not, we don't have to pucker your eyebrows together and get all serious about it. It's just soften into it. There's sweetness in this. It's like, oh, what's this like? But not what's this like? You're not trying to figure yourself out so that, because that's the agenda of trying to fix. Like, let me just really be here with this. What is this? A settling feeling, soft. Another thing that's really supportive is to, um, that allows the, the, se- the separate sense of self and all of the gender of wanting it and resisting it and judging it, tuning out, um, is noticing the pleasantness when you are connecting. The, actually, I know this is obvious, but these are subtle and they make a big difference. When, there is, when you're really feeling friendly, appreciate that. That's no small thing. This is your beauty, your Dropping keys and there this beauty prisoner is emerging. Appreciate it. Really feel, this is sweet. This is lovely. I can enjoy that part. That, of course, is going to make it more available to us. And it doesn't have to be just the really nice stuff that you enjoy. Enjoy the moments that you're actually not complaining or you're not whining. <laughs> you know, you're not down on yourself. You'll find, oh, gosh, I actually wasn't down on myself for the last 10 minutes. That's unbelievable. Really appreciate that. You know, that's, it's, this is radical. This is really worth, this is valuable to appreciate. So wherever there's a sense of, of pleasantness, of, of goodness, not loud and Hollywood versions of this, but oh, just even the relief when we're not being neurotic. And we're just quietly minding our own business and just quietly wishing well to the ants and the, well, there's that little, what are they called, salamanders? Oh, keep out of the way, don't get trodden on. You know, That's a sweet thing. There's sweetness here. The, the heart begins to really enjoy being connected and caring. And that is so sustaining. And when we're able to, that's happening for us, we're not cl- clutching after it or tr- praising ourselves for it or making anything about me, but we can actually feel held in that pleasantness. It's really supportive. The relief when the, you know, then you are judging yourself or you're judging someone or there's that kind of like, oh, got to do something or it should be doing better or some such comment like that. There's a, a separate sense of selfing going on. And then it's noticed. And then it's just like, oh, I don't need to do that. And it releases. That's such a pleasure, that relief. So really be there for the pleasure of that, the sweetness of the benefit in that way.
And then one last thing I would say that can be really supportive too, from time to time, from time to time judiciously, but really supportive, is reflecting, is actually stopping, repeating, repeating, and just taking a moment and reflect, taking a few moments and reflecting on what it's like to actually be developing a caring heart. What a great thing is that? Reflecting on the goodness that you're generating in yourself. Reflecting on some of these qualities that we all have. We're, this is the noblest part of ourselves that we're growing here. I mean, we may have lots of rowdy bits, but we're actually inviting and doing all that we can to enhance the most beautiful parts of ourselves. It's amazing. It's really worth respecting. It's really worth bowing to. So stop and reflect that this is some of the most precious thing that the world needs is these states and they're available to you and you're actually working on that. It's fantastic. We don't, in, again, in our society on the whole, we, th- we don't want to indulge ourselves and praise ourselves and think, oh yeah, I'm so good. You know. We don't, we, we look down on that. But actually to appreciate your goodness is recommended by the Buddha. It's the best way to gladden your heart. So useful reflections. So not just yourself, but all of us. That these, we're all here. Like, how good is this, what we're doing? You know, it's, it's, it's honorable. It's fine. You know, just reflecting on some of that, the impact and how it has affected. Sometimes reflect on how you know your practice has actually affected the way you are. Even just having a conscience that pricks. Thank the Lord we have consciences which prick so that we won't act out and do things that that are clumsy and harmful. It's like appreciating these qualities. It really, really helps these practice grow. So um, then I just uh, add a couple of little stories of my own. So um, when I began, when I first learned about meta practice, it was about 92 or something like that a long time ago. And I could not relate to it at all. I had such a hard time. And I, first of all, I, didn't, I couldn't relate to the words that were, that were offered and no alternatives were offered. There was just this set, you had to just do this set thing and that didn't work very well. I'm not... I like my own words, I'm not very good at other, I'm a word nerd, but fussy about those words that I'm nerdish about. So that was hard. And then um, I got really triggered by the, the sense of benefactor. First of all, I had to start with myself and I clearly didn't like myself. And so that was, I was the opposite going on inside. I was like, no, I was, bar- all the time I was disagreeing with the things I was saying because I knew that I wasn't believing them. And so then I was trying for a benefactor and I was like, I don't have a grandmother. One, one was dead and one never picked me up because she was a snob, you know. And, and it's like, oh God, you know, like the whole idea of benefactor, I was searching around, I can't do this practice. And so I had such a bad relationship with it for years so I would like not listen or not go to the sits where it was in meadows really difficult and so I kind of fell into it by mistake like I didn't mean to and uh, and it was sort of just my practice was you know tenderizing me and uh, and I was on a six weeks retreat and uh, my I was a single mother for many years and my son was now 16 and so I was able to take a six weeks retreat for the first time I could leave him and now I could go on a retreat and I spent two weeks in the middle of the six weeks crying over the fact that he was now old enough that he didn't need me anymore <laughs> I was having to let go of the sweetness of being his mom and re- I hadn't realized how attached I was to that whole thing and his dependence and everything. That was really painful, but it made me, it was compassion and it was also love. And I was, my teacher was wise enough to say, love him, you know, like be there and do that. So he, I was using him as a way of loving, which, but she didn't use the M word. So I didn't know that this was meta, but, but I was able to now be in my tender heart and f- and then it was sort of subsequently I realized oh this is that's a kind of meta it was lovely, and then another time was a, later than that a few years later, and uh, and again I wasn't doing any formal meta and I was again with this still antagonistic relationship and I was in a walking period, in a long retreat, and uh, and I was walking up and down this path outside back and forth. And quite near the beginning of my walking period, this voice started up inside my head. And it didn't have metaphrases or anything, but it had a tone that was really friendly. And it said, it was like, it was like giving me a pep talk for 45 minutes. And it was kind of saying, you know, Heather, you're actually doing okay. 
I mean, you know, you're really quite a reasonable person. You could be, look at all the things you could be doing with your time and money right now. You've got like 10 days or you've got a month or whatever it was. And, uh, and look what you're actually doing with your life. Look at how you look at your work, what you're doing for work. You're not doing it for money. I was a midwife and it was before the law was changed and I was involved with changing the law. And I was, you know, in service really. And it was very satisfying and very wholesome. And I could have done other things. And, um, you know, you actually, your kids really like you, you know, and you've got some nice friends and you actually care about these things and you pay your taxes. You're actually, you're okay, you know. Basically, it was get over yourself. Like, stop being so down on yourself. You're fine. You're not fantastic, but you could be a lot worse, you know. (laughs) But the tone of this wasn't like any tone I'd ever had in my head about myself. It was always like, come on, you know, like that. And it was remarkably benign. And the effect, that was one thing. But then I went and sat after that period. And I wasn't doing anything. It just was doing it to me. I sat, and when I sat, my whole system was so peaceful. And my, I went so calm and so quiet, so deeply collected, because I was so soothed by friendliness. I thought, wow, that's the effect of metta. And so I began to understand wishing well. And I had been wishing myself well, but I hadn't been meaning to, but I just happened, it happened to be now happening. Anyway, just I wanted you to be reassured that it isn't, especially people who are newer to it, you don't all just automatically take to this lovely thing like ducks to water. You know, we have to find our way. That's why I like to say it is an art. And you will find what works for you, given the, the intention of what we're doing here. Okay, so I might just have a few little beautiful quotes. Aldous Huxley said this in the 50s. Some of you older ones will know who this is. People often ask me what's the most effective technique for transforming their lives. It's a little embarrassing that after years and years of research and experimentation, I have all I have to say is the best answer is just be a little kinder. Being truthful, even though it may be a bit more scary, and a bit more vulnerable. Being truthful takes a certain strength. It's not a weakness to be vulnerable. It's not capitulating. Lie detectors measure, they work by measuring stress. And so it's actually harder work to lie than it is to be truthful. Even though it takes courage, it's hard work to pretend. It's less work to be vulnerable. It's courageous, but that's not work. This isn't about the um, removing the obstacles of metta, which is really the topic of my conversation, but it's a sweet quote. Um, it's about metta just being a warm thing. It's just an example of kindness. Uh, There's a story of a woman living in an apartment, and, uh, and her next to her living room was the bedroom of the apartment next door, where there was a young family, and these parents would put their little toddler to bed in the bedroom and say goodnight, and then they'd leave and go and watch TV and probably couldn't hear, who knows, that the co- toddler would cry herself to sleep. And so the woman living in this apartment didn't know what to do and didn't know whether to go and, you know, say something or didn't know what to do. And then she realized at some point, I mean, this was, went on as an ongoing scenario she lived with, and she realized, oh, if I can hear her, she can hear me. So she ended up singing. So she'd sing through the wall to this little baby and sing her to sleep. Easy. Talking about easy to be friendly. Um, it's a quote of the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who said, I've decided to love. Everything else is a burden. Mm. I think I'll end with this little quote. When the Buddha actually died, he was 82, and, uh, and his, many of you know, um, 
person who'd attended him and taken care of him and got his food and washed his feet and all of that was his first cousin, Ananda. And uh, Ananda had spent 40 of his 45 years of teaching with him in his company, very, very attached to him. And uh, um, then he was dying and then he died. And the thing that Ananda, it is reported that he said over and over and over, sad and missing him because he loved him, was he who was so kind. He who was so kind. That was his understanding of his dear companion. So I'll end with that. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for giving me your attention. I hope it's a little bit useful for you. So now we have about four, about 20 minutes or so for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.